Welcome to the Todd Run Podcast. I'm your host, David Bethay, joining you today from the North Avenue Studios to share with you our Title Run Sports Gridiron Notebook. This is going to be the area where we have some weekly discussion about the football world. Usually we'll cover the local teams, UGA, Georgia Tech. Occasionally we'll talk some Georgia State, Georgia Southern, if those of you that listen are interested in it. But we'll kind of focus on recapping their games uh, from the weekend and We'll usually touch on one or two national college football stories as well. So for our first edition, uh, we want to talk about the games between Georgia Tech and Syracuse, UJ and Arkansas as well. And for Georgia Tech fans, it's kind of the same song, third verse for Georgia Tech. They struggled again with turnovers, and they struggled again with the kicking game. And if I was to tell you that one team in this game ran for 275 yards, Outgained the other team in first down, 23-14. Outgained the other team in total yardage by nearly 100 yards. Had an eight-minute advantage in time possession and lost by three scores. You would say, what happened? That team was Georgia Tech, who despite having all those things in their favor, lost by 17 points to Syracuse, 37-20, because of five turnovers four of which came from Jeff Sims in the form of pretty bad interceptions, mostly inaccurate overthrows. And Tech's a young team. They're going to get better, but you can kind of expect to see the same story play out in a lot of their games this year. When Tech doesn't turn it over, they have a stable of really good young running backs between Jemias Griffin and uh, Jameer Gibbs, who had 105 yards in this game, and Dante Smith also. I know I'm forgetting one, but – between that stable of young backs, they've been able to run the football effectively in pretty much every game this year, and that's going to keep them in a lot of football games. Now, they're not great on defense. They're very up and down. They tend to give up big plays. Uh, they've been decent against the run. But the big thing is, with their lack of experience and Jeff Sims being a freshman quarterback, a true freshman, um, playing big-time college football, they're going to be an up-and-down team. But I do think there's reason for optimism. And like I said, when they don't turn the ball over with the way they're able to run the ball and the playmakers they have on offense, Malachi Carter, uh, some of those guys, they're going to be able to keep games close. But when they don't, they're going to get run off the field. So Tech loses 37-20 to Syracuse, drops them to 1-2 in the season, 1-1 in the conference. Uh, They've got a tough game coming up next week at home against Louisville. But it's a game that they should, again, be competitive in if they take care of the football. The story of the day locally, though, was UGA in their battle against Arkansas as they took a trip to Fayetteville, Arkansas, to take on the worst team in the SEC over the last two years. Arkansas came into this game with a 19-game conference losing streak, which is absurd. The last team to have one that long was Vanderbilt in the early 2000s. So this was the debut game for Dewan Mathis as he was named the starting quarterback. It came out late yesterday that uh, JT Daniels, the transfer from USC has not been cleared to play. And so Kirby went with Dewan Mathis, and it was a bit of a train wreck. Um, Mathis started, struggled mightily, and had to be replaced with former walk-on Stetson Bennett. Now, Stetson Bennett provided a really steadying hand behind the wheel of Todd Munkin's offense. He went up going 20 of 29 for 211 yards and two touchdowns. And I would wager that there's an open competition this week heading into the season-defining matchup with Auburn because if you lose to Auburn, you still have Tennessee, Alabama, 
and Florida to play, and a much improved South Carolina team and Kentucky team as well. So it ain't looking real good. So the Auburn game is almost a almost a must win already in week two of the season, and that game will give you a really good indication of UJ ceiling with this quarter with this current quarterback situation, especially if JT Daniels is not able to play. Um, we mentioned Stetson Bennett in our season preview, and what we told you there was that he is actually a better than average third string quarterback. He's a guy that is essentially like an NFL an NFL backup quarterback, a guy that can come in, run your offense competently, and do enough in a pinch to give you a chance to win a game. But you wouldn't want him to be your long-term starter just because he's limited with his size, athletic ability, arm strength, those kind of things. Um, when I think of Stetson Bennett, the stories I remember is he played Baker Mayfield on scout team as, as, a, as a freshman in 2017 and apparently lit up that really good UJ defense and scout team. So he's got some game. Um, you saw some of the things that he does well. He's calm. He gets the ball quickly. He makes good decisions, all that stuff. But the story is really the poor play of Mathis. And to provide some context, a lot of what went wrong for UJ was not Mathis's fault. So big picture, UJ wins this game 37-10. It was 7-5 at halftime. Yes, you heard that correctly. 7-5. And UJ did not score an offensive point on their first six possessions. Their only score came from a safety. And a lot of the early play calls in the first six series included a lot of design runs from Mathis. But they didn't actually give a lot of totes to Zamir White and James Cook. And when they did run the ball, they weren't very effective as the offensive line really struggled early on in the game. Um, the passing game was also very, very aggressive early on. Munkin called a lot of five- and seven-step drops. And UJ honestly struggled to protect. Mathis was under pressure a lot. And being a young quarterback, he was very quick to bail and take off. There was a couple of frustrating plays where we'd have trips to one side and he would take off running away from the trips and would run out of room or end up having to throw the ball away. Um, and so he would mix He'd have one or two impressive runs and then he would have a head scratching run like one early, uh, late in the second quarter or first quarter where he steps out of bounds a full yard short of the first down marker when he had room to get the first down. He just overall looked like a guy starting his first college game. He looked lost, honestly. Uh, and he got done no favors by the play calling and the right side of UJ's offensive line, which was just abysmal in the first half. They played three different right tackles trying to find the right combination. And the, the long and short of it is that they squandered a couple of early chance, early chances to score by getting some absolutely outstanding field position off of really good returns on, um, on a kickoff from Kenny McIntosh and on some punts for Kiaris Jackson. 98 penalty yards in the first half yeah that's not going to help either and then you had a couple of other things go wrong so you know the, the narrative is going to be that Mathis wasn't able to lead UJ on a scoring drive but UJ failed to convert on a fourth and one Zamir White gets stopped somewhere around the Arkansas 20 he gets stopped for like a no gain he doesn't even make it back to the line of scrimmage uh they got taken out of an easy field goal later on by a botched snap the ball rolls past a ball goes through Dewan Mathis's hand. It was a catchable snap, but it was a little bit to his left. And he has to dive on it. They lose like 12 yards, and they get out of field goal range. And then Mathis just misses George Pickens on a fade route. Actually drops in a beautiful ball over the shoulder on a go route, but Pickens ends up stepping out of bounds. And you have to think, if you just convert those two field goals plus the Pickens catch, it's 13 points, and the whole half looks completely different. So... The, the narrative, like I said, is going to be that Mathis wasn't able to lead UJ on any scoring drives. 
and he did not play well. But again, it's a little more nuanced than that. And one of the things that frustrated me was, and I said this, I said this in the first half. I said they need to be doing more runs to the actual running backs. Something you would have never heard a UJ fan say last year. Hey, run the ball more. Yeah. And they need to give Mathis easier throws. Stetson Bennett came in, and he was the beneficiary of some play calling that was simple. They ran a couple RPO slants, let him throw some hitch routes, some quick outs, and he got a rhythm very quickly. Mathis, they had taking five-step drops and trying to throw dig routes. He would get pressured, bail out, or make a bad throw, and it just the whole offense just looked just jointed with him in there. So I hope that one of the things they do if they choose to play him in the future is start off by giving him some easy throws, allow him to get a rhythm like Bennett did, and Bennett's very accurate the football, which Mathis was not. Threw, Mathis threw a really bad pick down in the red zone where uh, Jermaine Burton, who actually looked really good in this game, runs like a, a deep end route, and Mathis throws the ball like four yards behind him to a defensive back that's not even close to Burton that ends up making the pick. And it was just stuff like that that led to him being yanked on the seventh possession. Uh, some people are saying that that was actually Todd Munkin's call, co-signed by Kirby, but that he just didn't like what he was seeing out of Mathis. So we'll see what develops out of that. A few things that were good, though. Special teams were really outstanding for UGA. They blocked a punt. Um, Camarda planted five punts inside the 10. He clearly was listening to me drag him on this podcast and complain about him always putting the ball in the end zone. As I mentioned earlier, Kyrus Jackson, who was a standout punt returner, I mentioned this in our preview, one of the guys I was really excited about. He had two really good returns, one a race by penalty. I think uh, he ended up with like 45 yards of returns uh, officially, but really it was more like 60 yards. Uh, Kenny McIntosh had a couple of long kick returns. I think he averaged over 40 yards return on his kick returns. And then uh, Jack Podlesny made both of his field goals. And all of this combined to result in ridiculously good field position for UGA. I think their average starting field position in the first half was like somewhere around like the 44-yard line. And they completely squandered it. And the other big story for the game was the UJ defense. Um, outstanding. As good as advertised. Early in the game, Richard LeCount got caught looking in the backfield and gave up a long touchdown play. It was it was a bad play. He's in he's in man coverage. He look, peeks in the backfield. The guy runs right past him down the sideline. He gives up a long touchdown. But he recovered, ended up getting uh, two picks and a PBU. Returned one pick like 40 yards. Stokes and Campbell look like absolute lockdown corners. Stokes even stole a pick six on a rub route. Um, rub route's when you have a receiver on the outside running a slant route. The inside receiver runs some kind of uh, outside breaking route, and you try to get the two players defending each of them to run into each other. And Stokes actually gets a beat on the inside move, but the receivers hit each other. Stokes takes two steps inside. The ball hits him in the chest, and he takes it back to the house. And with Stokes being a guy that's probably going to run in the four threes at the combine as a track guy coming out of high school, uh, nobody was going to catch him. But overall, I really liked what I saw to UJ's corners. Uh, Campbell wasn't challenged a lot. Uh, Arkansas did a lot of short passes, a lot of RPOs. The one thing that I saw that did upset me a little bit was that uh, the UGA defense was still bad at playing those RPO slants. That's what you saw LSU just destroy UGA with the end of the year. Um, Al- Auburn hurt UGA with it also. And just the way we play, just the way UGA plays coverage, that's a route they struggle to cover. And that's something to be concerned about. But I know that's probably nitpicking. I mean, Arkansas was held to 77 rushing yards and 10 points. And even though um, UJ did struggle with some of the RPO game as far as the, the slant routes, they were really good in the screen game and the outside throws. They absolutely gobbled up bubbles and flat routes, and they just showed so much team speed. Where the ball's thrown out in the flat, you see a five-yard cushion, and all of a sudden there's UGA, a UJ player tackling the ball for a two-yard gain. 
And I thought, honestly, that uh, Arkansas came in with a great offensive game plan, minus a questionable reverse call inside their own 10, which ended up going for safety. They had a lot of really well-designed plays, a lot of misdirection. I thought they were really good. I just thought UJ speed, athleticism really negated what should have been a lot of really good plays. But overall, the outcome of this is that UJ's offense is a big cause for concern. They did get it going in the second half. Uh, Zamir White ended up with 71 yards on 13 carries. But again, there was never any rhythm to the UJ running game. They just weren't giving the ball to these guys consistently enough. And Zamir White ends up ripping off a couple longer runs in the second half to get up to that 71 yards. James Cook had seven carries for 26 yards, which that's not a great number, but the fact that he's getting seven carries, getting those touches is great. He did have a fumble that really hurt. Another play that took UGA out of field goal range when they were driving the ball when Setson Bennett came in. A um, couple final thoughts. Uh, some people that stood out. George Pickens was his normal solid self. Had a great uh, catch for a touchdown. Great catch run for a touchdown. It was so good to see Matt Landers and Demetrius Robinson actually catch the football, and it was great to see UJ actually utilize tight ends as Darnell Washington and John Fitzpatrick played a lot together. Darnell Washington is actually a good blocker, and he looks like a monster when he runs routes down the seam. So I, that's that's something UJ fans should be really excited about. Overall, going to next week's game against Auburn, it's the kind of game where the first team of 24 may very well win, and can UGA score 24 points with Stetson Bennett at quarterback if that's who they go with? Maybe. I, it's so hard to pick out, did Bennett play well in the second half? Did we call a better game in the second half? Is Arkansas just being Arkansas? Is there, Arkansas was like the 120th ranked defense or something around there last year in, in college football, one of the worst defenses in college football which is one of the reasons it was so alarming to only have five points in the first half against them. So what's our takeaway? Again, was Bennett really pretty good? Was Mathis just that bad? Did the calls change? Was Arkansas's defense just showing their true colors? There's a lot to piece together, but I will say this, that the UJ performance that they put up on offense in the first half will get them run off the field next week <laughs> against Auburn. Um, the UJ defense can't hold every team to 10 points, especially not teams that have a lot of playmakers on offense. And, it's to be determined what Auburn's offense actually is, but I promise you this, when you play Alabama, you ain't holding them to 10 points. And if you can't even get first downs, I think UJ started the game 1 of 11 on third down, you're going to be down three touchdowns in a hurry, even with the defense as good as it is. So UJ's got stuff to fix, but the defense is going to carry them a long way, and it'll be interesting to see what they do with the quarterback situation moving forward. Now, before we wrap up with the college football side of this show, it's kind of hard not to mention two of the really, really big stories nationally, one of which is – the second straight year that the Kansas State Wildcats have knocked off the Oklahoma Sooners, this time in Norman. And uh, the Sooners had a 21-point lead with about three minutes left in third quarter. The score is 35-14, and then K-State scores. They get a blocked punt that sets them up on the uh, Oklahoma side of the field, I think somewhere around the 30-yard line. Then they get a fumble. And all of a sudden, it's a one-score game. They start playing great defense on an Oklahoma offense that had shredded them for two quarters. Oklahoma put up 28 points in the second and third quarter. And then late in the game, they get a pick of Spencer Rattler after they go up go up 38-35 to seal the game. And the big thing, again, with Oklahoma was their inability to tackle. I mean, there was a play where Deuce Vaughn, the running back for K-State, goes on a 38-yard score where he breaks – five tackles and these are not difficult tackles he's just running through people 
Uh, Skylar Thompson was really good, the quarterback for KU State. He ran for three touchdowns. But the biggest thing here is that Oklahoma's defense comes back to bite them yet again, betraying them just like it did last year and just like it has every year in the college football playoff. And they are now in very, very serious jeopardy of missing the college football playoff because now they have no margin for error. They have to win out beating Texas and all the other good teams in their conference and win their conference championship. They don't have any room for a slip-up now. And with the defense playing the way it is, it's not hard to see some team like a Texas or even like a Texas Tech maybe getting them in a shootout. So that was one interesting story. Speaking of shootouts, Mike Leach has brought the air raid to the SEC. Keiju Costello, who is his transfer quarterback from Stanford, a grad transfer, threw the ball 60 times for a conference record 623 yards and five touchdowns. That's absolutely insane. And Mississippi State upsets LSU, the defending national champions, 44-34. to uh, It's the first time the defending national champion has lost their season opener since like 1998. I think that was Michigan. Uh, so LSU... Obviously, having lost a lot on defense, uh, two high draft picks in the secondary. Derek Stingley Jr. was out, which you weren't sure was going to matter from this for this game, but clearly it did. And uh, as Osiris Mitchell, the number one receiver for Mississippi State, went for seven and 183, two touchdowns. And Kylan Hill caught eight passes for 158 yards. They're really good running back there at Mississippi State, all SEC running back. But just seeing the Mike Leach offense work against a real SEC team, a real SEC defense, to the tune of 623 yards passing uh, combined with nine yards rushing was really quite a shock. So those are just two stories, nationally that, that are worth hitting on. It's interesting to see if this Mississippi State offense will really be able to keep this going throughout the season. With that said, let's shift gears over to the NFL and the Falcons. And, oh, boy, if you're a Falcons fan – the tears we are shedding right now. Uh, the Falcons lost to the Bears 30-26. Story of this game being, A, all the injuries that the Falcons came in with. Tat McKinley did not play. A.J. Terrell was put in the COVID-19 reserve list. Julio Jones did not play. Ricardo Allen did not play. So the Falcons already came in down several starters on what's already a very, very shaky defense. Also, oh, I forgot to mention, Foye Luakon didn't play. So the Falcons already came in down four starters off a very bad defense. They ended the game down six starters as late in the game, Grady Jarrett and Darquez Denard, who actually played really well in this game, both went down. So keep that in mind when I tell you that the Chicago Bears scored 20 points in the fourth quarter to come back and pull off yet another Heartbreaking, come-from-behind loss for the Falcons. And the thing is, this story is the same one we saw last week. Falcons played really well in the first half. They have a 16-10 to 10 lead at halftime. They really controlled the game. Lead 26-10 up to three quarters. Have completely controlled the game. The Bears have to bench Mitchell Trubisky. They bring Nick Foles off the shelf. And Foles comes in, throws for 188 yards, three touchdowns, which sounds like really good stats, but he was only 16-29. And if you watched... It wasn't like Foles was just shredding the Falcons' defense. He had basically two really good drives that ended in touchdowns and ended up being the difference in the game. And the thing that was confusing about watching this game was the Falcons had run the ball so effectively through the first three quarters. Uh, 25 carries for 144 yards total. Big 35-yard run from Brian Hill, who looked good. Todd Gurley had 14 carries for 80 yards. And the Falcons were running the ball effectively. Kind of went away from that in the end of the third, early fourth. Matt Ryan ended up throwing the ball 38 times, 19-38. He wasn't as effective as he has been in previous weeks. Um, 
And the Falcons essentially in the in the second half of the third quarter and the start of the fourth quarter just weren't able to stay on the field. And when you look at the team stats, the Falcons ran 13 less plays than the Bears. The Bears only they averaged roughly the same amount of yards per play, but the Falcons couldn't stay on the field late in the second half, and Matt Ryan wasn't effective on the very last drive of the game with a chance to get the Falcons uh, in position for a go-ahead score. He throws a pick, his probably his only really bad throw of the game, but it came at a terrible time, and the Bears are able to kneel the ball down and in the game. And it's just, it's such a frustrating, heartbreaking story, and it's the kind of thing that just makes you wonder: Is this how it's going to be all year? Because my prediction last week was more or less that the Falcons would be able to beat teams with really mediocre quarterbacks in shootouts. And that's what you got here. You got very mediocre quarterback play from Nick Foles, Mitch Trubisky. They threw for 300 yards, but it was on 50 attempts. They threw two picks. Uh, neither lit the sc- neither lit it up, honestly. And you just had the feeling that the Falcons were going to get that one more score in the fourth quarter that was going to put the game away. And they just couldn't shut out in the third in the fourth quarter, which is the only quarter in which they did not score. One touchdown, maybe even just a couple of field goals, puts this game out of reach, and the Falcons just couldn't get it done. And that's what happens when you rely on your offense to do everything. And on defense, again, it was very similar to last week. The Falcons played really well until the injuries piled up. Um, and the culprits here were, without question, in the secondary, Isaiah Oliver again. And Keanu Neal got beat also. Got beat for a play that went for a touchdown and then was reversed on a fourth down, which was a huge stop and then gets beat on a post route late in the game that cost the Falcons. And just Keanu Neal is good at what he does, but anytime you put him in man-to-man coverage on slot receivers or put him in deep hash coverage, he's not as good. He's a lot better covering running backs and tight ends. And the Falcons are being forced to do a lot more of those things with Ricardo Allen out with an elbow injury. And Isaiah Oliver had some good plays, had a couple pass breakups, um, had an interception go through his hands, but – his good play to bad play ratio, like I talked about last week, it's about 50-50. He makes a great pass breakup on a go route, and then he makes a terrible attempt at a tackle on a sideline throw to Allen Robertson. Him and Bleedier Wilson, who uh, Bleedier Wilson actually had a really good pick earlier in the game. Him and Bleedier Wilson, the two of them both have Allen Robertson wrapped up on the sideline. Allen Robertson just runs a route to the sticks and stops, a little hook route. They both have him. They just let him slip out of the tackle and run down the sideline for a touchdown 20 yards. And it's just like, I mean, kids in high school can make that tackle. And it just goes back to show the Falcons just aren't good in the secondary. There's no other way around it. And there are a lot of plays that should be made by competent NFL players that just aren't being made. And it's going to end up costing Dan Quinn his job. And coming into this game with all the injuries, it seemed right before Falcons lost. So if the Bears had come out and just shredded the Falcons from the start, it would have been understandable. Not excusable, but it would have made sense. Instead, the Falcons come out, play really good for three quarters, dominate, and then you're left thinking, okay, this is actually one that we're going to hold on to. And again, at the end of the game, you're scratching your head saying, how did the Falcons lose this game? You got two more sacks. You had eight more quarterback hits. You ran the ball effectively. And at the end of the day, you're still looking at the Bears having nine more minutes in time of possession and you taking your third L. And I said that the Falcons' ceiling I thought was still 8-8, eight and eight, but with loss like this, I can't help but think that this is really looking like a 9-7 and seven at – check that, 7-9 and nine at best. Because now, assuming that you still have your 4-2 and two record in the division, which I do still think is realistic. It's what they do every year. They have for the last five years. They've averaged that record. Now you have to beat the Denver Broncos. You have to beat the Detroit Lions. And you have to beat 
the San Diego, excuse me, <laughs> the LA Chargers just to get to seven wins. And that's assuming that you split with the Bucks and Saints, which aren't guarantees, even though I think that's a very likely outcome. Those aren't guarantees. So you're just left as a Falcons fan feeling like you're just watching the Titanic sink slowly. I still think this team could compete for the playoffs, but, I mean, this is what we are. I mean, this is what the Falcons are. They're a team that scores a lot of points. If they have an off day or an off quarter in offense, they're probably going to lose. If they have everybody healthy, they're probably going to score 30. They missed Julio today. If they don't, if they have him, you know, maybe they get one more touchdown. Maybe he's worth one more first down in the fourth quarter that helps them win. But ultimately, nobody wants to hear the excuses anymore. A lot of people are pointing to the the San Francisco 49ers who, with 12 people placed on our IR, beat the New York Giants 36-9. Now, I'll say that's not a great one-to-one comparison because San Francisco had injuries scattered all over their team. They weren't missing six starters on defense, and they're playing one of the three worst teams in the NFL. And, yes, the Giants are worse than the Falcons. Probably the only team worse than the Giants is the Jets. Um, so it's not apples to apples. But the point being, people are wondering, well, look at that team. Look at that coach. A, why don't we have him as our coach? And B, why can't we win like them? Why, why can't we do next man up? Well, you know what? It's a valid question. So, all in all, we're in for an up and down season. Just be prepared. You're going to see a lot of this. And there are going to be some weeks where we score enough to hold on and to hold off the last minute rally. And there's going to be some weeks where, there, where we aren't. And this is one of those weeks where we weren't able to. Let's just pray that we get these guys back. Grady Jarrett misses any amount of time. We're screwed. I mean, and it was good to see some things out of the defensive line. Charles Harris got a sack. <laughs> um, we, we are seeing some good things, but it's just not enough. And here's hoping that we can put together enough on offense to keep this thing afloat as the rest of the season plays out. All right, so that's it for this edition of the Gridiron Notebook. This is Dave Bethay for the Title Run Sports Podcast. That's it for today. Thank you for listening.